Welcome to the Shared Sedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Sharit Sedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. I first met Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp in the winter of 2019. We were both asked to lead a session at the Reform Movement's Biennial talking about ways in which synagogues were adapting in the 21st century. I was speaking about how a historic synagogue could keep those things that had led to its growth that were pieces of its history while also adapting to modernity and changing the ways in which we thought about synagogue. But Rabbi Turlenchamp was talking about what it meant to take a community and completely turn it on its head. Rabbi Turlenchamp had become the rabbi of Temple Shalom in Cincinnati, Ohio in 2010. And the synagogue was struggling. It had a shrinking membership, and at the time at which she was hired, the synagogue really was at risk of shutting its doors for good. So as Rabbi Turlenchamp came into her position, Of course, she faced obstacles in trying to make the changes she knew the synagogue needed. And as she attempted to modernize, one of her techniques was creating professionally produced YouTube videos she would use to share her message. In one of my favorites, a synagogue board retreat is haunted by the the way we've always done it demon. And every time a new idea emerged, the way we've always done it, demon, would attempt to squash it. In many ways, however, as Rabbi Turlin Champ knew, the way we've always done it is something that the Jewish community has been saying for a long time. And this week's Torah portion, Sav, provides one basis for it, continuing from last week's Parsha Vayikra, Uh, with instructions for the sacrifices that would be offered at the temple. The beginning of Leviticus as a whole provides a meticulous presentation of each of the possible kinds of offerings to God with specific instructions and details for how each would be carried out. Should any element be done incorrectly or improvised in any way, differently than the way it's described, the sacrifice is deemed to be offensive and ineffective, and while they don't say there would be demons that come out, it's pretty close. While the book of Leviticus is written as though the sacrifices were being described for the first time, in reality, the priests were most likely behind the writing of the book and were ensuring that the way they had always done it would be the way that it was always done in perpetuity. 
in many ways, looking at this Torah portion and thinking about our coming week, it would be very easy to make parallels between this understanding of the sacrifices and the order of the Passover Seder. After all, our Haggadah tells us how our Seder is supposed to go. And in many families, if anything were to change from their own family traditions, someone in the family will speak up that they've been done in the wrong way. It's not the way we've always done it, they'll say. And the Seder is a failure. That is, if anyone is listening to what's happening at the table, rather than counting how many paragraphs until they have to read again, and silently or not so silently, groaning about how long it is until they get to eat. This is the Passover Seder, the most widely observed Jewish home ritual in America, more so than lighting the Hanukkah candles. And many people either rush through it, dread it, or skip it altogether and go straight to dinner. But whether we rush, dread, or skip, that which we're rushing, dreading, or skipping is often viewed to be the way it's always been done. And I would argue that that is not the case. Biblically, Passover is a very simple holiday. We have a seven-day period where we are to eat no leavened bread. The evening before the first day, we are to kill a lamb, which is to be roasted and become our dinner. We eat that lamb with matzah, unleavened bread, and maror, the bitter herb, and we teach our children that we were slaves in Egypt, and now we're free. That's it. So you would actually get to dinner very quickly uh, with that Seder, but it might not be a dinner that you all enjoy making. When we get to the Mishnah, which is a second and third century account of about 300 years of rabbinic debate and dialogue, we find a Passover observance that has expanded but it expanded on a way that was meant to focus on the biblical goals, teaching children and celebrating freedom, ensuring that that evening was not boring. They did this in several ways that were meant to stimulate the minds of adults and at the same time keep children engaged before they had fidget toys. The Seder, as we think of it today, is most likely based on the Greek symposium. To the Jews of 2,000 years ago, the Greek aristocracy was the model of what it meant to be free, and the symposium was one of the Greek aristocracy's greatest extravagances. The symposium would take place in a special room with several couches arranged throughout it. Only men were allowed to participate, and they would recline on the couches as several courses of food were brought out by servants. There was a set amount of food and wine that was supposed to be consumed, and the men present would discuss philosophical issues, lounging as they enjoyed entertainment, and they would play games. But according to one ancient Roman historian who lived at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, Lucius Plutarchus, the goal of the symposium was to further a deeper insight into those points that were debated at the table. For the remembrance of those pleasures which arise from meat and drink is ungenteel and short-lived, but the subjects of philosophical queries and discussions remain always fresh after they've been imparted. The goal of the rabbis was to mimic the Greek symposia without going too far. For example, why four cups of wine? The rabbis will give all kinds of reasoning 
But listen to what the Greek author Eubulus wrote about the amount of wine at the symposia. For sensible men, he wrote, I prepare only three cups, one for health, which they drink first, the second for love and pleasure, and the third for sleep. After the third one is drained, wise men go home. The fourth cup is not mine anymore. It belongs to bad behavior. The fifth is for shouting. The sixth is for rudeness and insults. The seventh is for fights. The eighth is for breaking the furniture. The ninth is for depression. The tenth is for madness and unconsciousness. Um, I'll be placing that above my wine collection at home. So why four cups in our Seder? Well, I guess the rabbis were okay with at least a little bad behavior. While the Midrash tells us that it's for the four biblical expressions of redemption, perhaps it's because four cups was an ultimate sign of freedom. But after four, there was a fear that we would begin to mimic the not-so-desirable qualities of our neighbors. This fear continues with what we now know as the afikomen. We know this as the matzah children search for at the end of the Seder. But the original mention of afikomen says, you must not end the evening with an afikomen. Most scholars believe that the word afikomen goes back to the symposia's occasional conclusion with an epichorus, where the drunk members of the symposium would break into a neighboring home, forcing their party onto the residence they found. Therefore, the Seder eventually is required to end with what we'll call the afikomen, the last little bit of matzah, and no food is allowed after it so that there is no chance of copying this grotesque custom. All that said, the Talmudic story of Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Joshua, Rabbi Eleazar, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Tarfan discussing the exodus all night until they were told that the sun had risen and it was time for their morning prayers shows that those philosophical aspects of the symposium, the intellectual stimulation that would come with these lavish feasts, was intended to remain a part of our Passover observance. The idea of questions provides the bridge of how children were to be treated at the Seder. While those Greek symposia were only open to men, the Passover Seder was for men, women, and children, with everyone reclining and almost everyone drinking. The rabbis, in discussing whether or not children should drink four cups of wine, say no, they should not. Sorry, Tyler. Because drinking wine would cause them to fall asleep. Instead, we should give them grains and nuts, most likely as toys. So they did have fidget toys, so that they'll stay awake and they'll ask questions. This is where our other understanding of the afikomen comes from, as the rabbis continue to say that we should snatch the matzahs away from the children in order to keep them entertained and engaged. The rabbis were willing to do anything to keep the children awake and interested, so they would ask questions. And you might think this re refers to the four questions we know and love, but originally even these were not as we know them today. The Mishnah says that after pouring the second cup of wine, the child should ask questions. 
And only if the child asks no questions should the father say, Why is this night different from all other nights? And only then, if the child still doesn't ask questions, would they continue with giving those four differences between this night and all other nights. Again, if the child asks no questions, the parent would say manishtana. Originally, it seems the child was supposed to ask any questions that may have been on their mind, and only if they refused would the father step in, and in the Talmud it was the father. Here, the children were encouraged not only to see this Judaized symposium, but they were required to contribute and not with something scripted, but they were supposed to mimic the questioning that they had seen the adults modeling up to this point. They too were supposed to think, question, challenge, and learn. And at a time when women were not treated equally anywhere in the world, women are also encouraged to recline, participate, and ask questions. The Passover Seder was hoping to create an experience that while similar to the Greek symposium, was open and inviting to all. So what do we do with this today? By no means am I saying that you should all go home and get rid of your Haggadah. The Haggadah was written down beginning in the 9th century to ensure that important elements of our observance were not lost. But that Haggadah is not the way we've always done it. And we can view it as a starting place, not an ending one. So for those who will have kids at the Seder, we should learn that we can do just about anything to keep them engaged. We can dress up in costume, we can have art projects, we can give out toys to play with. But if we do, we have to make sure that they allow for involvement in the Seder. And all of us can have fun at the Seder. Whether there are children present or not, the Seder should be enjoyable. Depending on the crowd, this could mean songs and games, or a deep intellectual conversation in which we leave our Haggadah. For children, it doesn't mean that they, just, that they don't sing the four questions. It means that those aren't the only ones. We can still go around the table reading our paragraphs, but anyone should feel comfortable to interrupt in order to ask questions or propose a discussion. The Talmud teaches that even someone who happens to be alone on Passover should ask themselves questions. So wherever we are and whoever we are with, we should try to learn something new about our Judaism, about our world, and perhaps about ourselves. Remember, Plutarchus wrote that the Greek symposia would challenge participants to further a deeper insight into those points that were debated at the table, that the subjects of those philosophical queries and discussions more so than the food and wine, as wonderful as the brisket and matzo ball soup may be. That wasn't Plutarchus. This is my addition. But that the conversations will remain always fresh, even after they've been imparted. So we pray that this Passover, during our Seder, we may learn from this lesson of the Greek symposium. May we all stay awake and engaged. May we ask questions and challenge our assumptions. And may we enjoy one another's company even as we enjoy our freedom. 
not worrying about the way it's always been done, but focusing on the opportunities for the ways we can do it now that will create memories and discussions that will lo last long after our evenings have ended. May this be God's will. Amen. Allison.